What is it to be blessed? Hashtag blessed. Or should I say hashtag blessed? Too blessed to be stressed. You guys have heard some of these, right? What is it to be blessed? What is it to be cursed? What do these terms even mean anymore? What does the Bible mean when it uses these? When Moses says, see, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse, what is he saying? Language is a cultural construct, and so without knowing it, every time we open the Bible, every time we listen to a podcast, every time we even have a thought, we are enslaved to the myopic stranglehold of our own culture. Let me give you a simple example. Football. Anywhere else in the world, if you say the word football, one's mind is taken to a large field where a white and black ball that is round is kicked around into nets. Now, what do we call that in the United States? Unless you actually play it, and then you probably call it football more often than not. I don't know. I have to ask Travis. He would know better, right? The rest of the world says football, but here in the U.S., football has one meaning. Soccer is what we call the rest of the world's football. Now, this is a relatively well-known cultural uh, uh, contextual element, isn't it? You guys know this one. I say that, and you're like, oh, yeah, I know that one. But what about the words and ideas in which we have little visibility to the fact that our culture has formed our understanding? For the most part, the Bible speaks across cultures, and that's why it's an amazing book. It doesn't matter the time or the culture. It speaks across. But in many instances, even within that cross-cultural speak, We look at certain words and we have to admit that our culture has forced our hand in what they mean. Blessing and cursing are two of those. All one has to do is look at Instagram and find the hashtag blessed and you will quickly understand that in this culture, to be blessed means to live the life, to live the dream. It's the dream of material prosperity. And this false view of blessing affects everything. It affects our view of heaven. It affects our view of rest. It affects our view of God's purposes and his goal. Because if we're not careful, we slowly but surely drift into the contextual ideas around wealth and abundance. And yet, when most American Christians approach the Bible, we fail to see that this faulty contextual view hampers our ability to read correctly. We also fail to discern entire spiritual movements and leaders for the charlatans they are because we are blind to the truth. Dear church, how is it that we live in a world where so many people, tens of thousands of people, can be led astray by pastors and clergy that suck their congregations dry, existing in overflowing abundance while many in their congregations can't even make rent. How is it possible? As I was preparing for this, I ran across a, um, a little short bit that I can't put up on the screen because of the language in it, but it was discussing prosperity gospel, and I was showing it to Kelly, and we were looking at the crowds around the pastors that were being presented in this. Tens of thousands of people that buy into a pastor who sucks them dry and tells them that if they're only faithful, then they'll do the same. They'll be just as wealthy. Well, how does this happen? It's actually quite simple. You see, in a religious system in which the primary deity is material wealth, it logically proceeds that those who are to be followed and lifted up as the ideal priests of that system are those who are indeed materially wealthy. How could you be seen as a priest of that system unless you are indeed wealthy? The standard of that system is no longer holiness, but rather success, wealth, and influence. And so no one balks when these pastors keep getting new cars or build riverfront homes worth millions of dollars or buy their wives new Lamborghinis and put it on Facebook and Instagram or operate as an Instagram influencer along with the Kardashians. If they're flashy enough, if they're trendy enough, and they enable the congregation that they lead to sit in their religious worship of comfort, ease, and popularity, they will be left alone and, in fact, revered. And this, dear flock, is where the pernicious, beastly, and perverse false gospel known as the prosperity gospel originates. 
For those of you that are not familiar with this term, there's actually a great definition in the source of all truth, Wikipedia. It says this, Prosperity theology, sometimes referred to as the prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel, the gospel of success, or seed faith, is a religious belief among some Christians who hold that financial blessing and physical well-being are always the will of God for them, and that faith, positive speech, and donations to religious causes will increase one's material wealth. Prosperity theology views the Bible as a contract between God and humans. If humans have faith in God, he will deliver security and prosperity. Okay, there you go. There's prosperity gospel. Now notice this last part. A contract between God and humans. That faith will deliver security and prosperity. In other words, if you have enough faith, you will not suffer and life will be good. Some of you already are going, wow, I didn't know I was a prosperity gospel believer. But it runs rampant in the church. Now, this is not a new theology. It didn't come in with the United States. It's been around as long as mankind has been around. It can be found in the early origins of history. If you think back to the book of Job, for instance, which most biblical theologians and historians believe occurred very early in the history of the span of time that the Bible covers, um, there's these friends that come along Job. You guys remember the story? Job had basically everything in his life destroyed. And his friends come along to him and they start trying to give him reasoning, theological reasoning as to why he was suffering. His friend Eliphaz tells him that the innocent prosper. And Bildad says, God punishes the wicked. Zophar says, the wicked suffer. Creating rigid black and white scenarios where only those who are faithful have a good life and only those who are wicked have a bad life. Therefore, Job, you must have a bad life. We see this even in the church today, as I'll show you. There is this core theology built into us that those who are righteous have easy, wealthy lives and that those who are wicked have hard lives. But one look around us makes us realize that that is not truth. There is some truth in that. If you follow the Bible's commands, uh, you're probably going to miss some of the big uh, oncoming trains in life, right? If you follow the Bible's commands, life will be generally better, but that doesn't mean suffering will be totally removed. But this does not stop with the charlatans of televangelism and false faith healing ministries. You can even find this faux prosperity gospel in many small and, and large, um, well, churches. You can find it especially in large, wealthy megachurches. It may not be spoken, but it is shown by the attitudes and actions of the people that if you go through hard times, you must not be faithful or you're probably in sin. And this is why, dear church, things like miscarriage and mental illness are shoved under the rug in most churches because there is an unspoken statement that if you were faithful, you would not struggle with these things. It is a faux prosperity gospel, and it's against the heart of the Father. Now, all one must do to see that this theology is absolute garbage is look at Jesus. Jesus must not have been very faithful <laughs> because Jesus didn't even have a place to lay his own head. All you have to do is look to Paul, who was our hero of faithfulness to Christ and yet suffered many physical maladies. And even, if you read his words, had some mental illness struggles, anxiety, stress, Intense depression. He even spoke to Timothy, his protege, who most likely suffered from some form of anxiety and stress and even had ulcers and said, hey, take a little bit of wine for your stomach. Now, if faith was what got you a removal of suffering, a removal of sickness, then these guys weren't faithful. So you can see that it's garbage right away. Prosperity and money is simply a thing. And what matters is how it's used. For a personal kingdom or for a heavenly kingdom? Paul even coached Timothy to remind those in the church at Ephesus that we're wealthy to be generous and to use it for the purposes of the kingdom. Wealth and poverty are simply states in which one exists, and it's what is done with that wealth that defines blessing or cursing. It's not that using your wealth or having wealth shows that you're blessed. That's not at all what the Bible says. 
And so when we come to passages like today that discuss blessing and cursing, that have an entire section talking about the goodness of the land, we can very easily have our cultural context come in and creep out the biblical context of covenant faithfulness and start to create an entire chapter that talks about how God's desire for his people is to be wealthy. And if you're not careful, it may not be the primary way you read this, but it's a pretty close second. And so today, my hope is to do one thing with this chapter, is to discern blessing in a prosperity-driven culture. I want to discern blessing in a prosperity-driven culture. So let's begin to unpack this topic by looking at our text today. The first thing that we see from the reading that Michael and Sarah did for us is this. Blessing is a statement of God's presence among his people. There's your biblical definition of blessing. I already gave it to you. Blessing is a statement of God's presence among his people. If you go back and look at the end of chapter 10 there in verse 22, you see that Moses finishes this section as he has at multiple points throughout the summary of the law by recounting God's faithfulness. He says, you have been made as numerous as the stars of heaven. And he's speaking back to Genesis where the Lord says, I will, I promise, make your descendants as many as the stars of heaven. It's a shorthand way of saying, remember the covenant relationship that God has with us. He's our father that dwells amongst his covenant people. He is faithful to us. He's with us. And then in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 11, he starts to go through and recount things that have happened. And he gives, again, a shorthand list. And in essence, what he's saying in verses 1 through 7 is, remember what he did to Egypt on our behalf. Remember what he did in the midst of our camp when Korah, Dathan, and Abiram rebelled against his chosen leader. Remember what he did in disciplining us. All of these things are hearkening to the idea that God is with them and amongst them. You see, if God weren't with them, he wouldn't care that uh, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram were rebelling. If he weren't with them, he wouldn't care that Egypt was creeping down their back about to destroy them. If he weren't with them, he would abandon them and not train them as a father does his children. This should point our minds right back to chapter 8 in Deuteronomy. Just go back there, probably one page turn in your Bible, to chapter 8, starting in verse 5, and take a look at it there. Chapter 8, verse 5. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. That's a statement of love, guys, not a statement of wrath. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs, flowing out in the valleys and the hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron, and on and on and on it goes. But notice again what it says. We we talked about this a few weeks ago. Verse 11, Take care, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, i.e. material prosperity, Then your heart will be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, this is what happens, guys. We confuse the goal, relationship, and covenant faithfulness with our creator with the outcome of what happens when he's among his people. Hey, we all get our provision taken care of. And we turn and make that the priority. Moses here in chapter 8 and in chapter 11 is reminding them, guys, he's about to take you in. You're about to start to have a better life than you had as slaves in Egypt, better life than you had wandering through the wilderness. Don't confuse the material you get with the fact that the whole reason you get it is covenant faithfulness with your God, covenant relationship with your God. Moses reminds them of God's loving and intimate connection to them. In essence, he says, Israel You have seen God's love for us. You have seen his work amongst us. And we are blessed because we are his. That's his point. You see, dear brothers and sisters, there is a huge imagery here that we often glance over. Think with me of what God intended creation to be. 
God as the provider, living in holy communion and covenant creation, a covenant relationship with his creation. And within that creation, man was chosen and commissioned to co-rule as sub-regents and sub-royalty under God's kingly rule. This is the garden. And if we could stay faithful in very simple covenant and very simple submitted obedience, we would remain in the midst of a land in which God provided. But you guys remember the story. Our first mother and father, it didn't work out well. They immediately rebelled against that plan and were unfaithful in the midst of their covenant commitment. Rather than ruling over the beasts of the earth, they became enslaved to a beast, the serpent, and fell into depravity, becoming beasts themselves. And as a result of their choice to break the covenant commitment with God, God had them ejected to the east out of the land which he provided. Here now, in Deuteronomy, God's people are standing on the east side of the land God wants to provide for them. The east side of the Jordan, about to step into the land that God would give them, where he would dwell amongst them and provide for them. What we see here is a restoration of Eden, in a sense. Moses knows that God is with them and that he is trying to restore a land in which God and man can once again dwell in covenant relationship together. And if they can stay in that covenant relationship with God, Moses knows that the blessing of that relationship will affect their lives and they will once again be well within the provision of God. Take a look there at verse 8 in chapter 11 with me. Go ahead and step back to chapter 11 and look at verse 8. After he makes this statement about God's loving connection to them and that God is with them or else these things wouldn't have happened, he says to them, guys, because of that, you shall therefore, you shall do this because of that, keep the whole commandment that I command you today that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going to possess and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is where the description starts to make us think, Oh man, yeah, we're rolling in it. The wealth, look at this, the milk and the honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. It's very odd. He's getting very specific here. We need to pay attention. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven a land that the Lord your God cares for. Now, the couple people in here that are farmers are like, I notice the comparison of irrigation, right? The rest of us are like, what, <laughs> right? Notice he compares this irrigation. That'll come in handy. Hold on to that. It's a land, verse 12, that the Lord your God cares for. Interesting. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, we hear that and we think, okay, what's the reward for that? No, he's saying stay in the relationship. If you stay in the midst of the covenant that's already been given to you by grace, is another way to put it, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you rain for your land in its season. In other words, if you stay connected to him in the land he's provided, hey, it's going to go well for you. It's not a reward for being holy. He will give the rain for your land in its seasons, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain, your wine, and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for livestock. Interesting. And you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them because our tendency is when material prosperity comes, we forget the provider of that prosperity and we start to go towards other idols, such as prosperity itself. Paul said this in Romans 1. He said, you forget your creator and you worship the creation. If we're not careful here, we can forget this first point, that blessing is a statement of God's presence among his people. And we can quickly let our worldview and cultural context step in and confuse the side effect of the relationship with God, provision, with the goal itself, which is covenant relationship with God. We read the first verses of 8 and 9 here and think, yes, guys, if you will obey, you will get to inherit the wealth of the land. It's a great contract between God and humans. If you have faith, then he'll deliver security and prosperity. Don't you see that, guys? Well, wait a minute. Wasn't that the definition of the prosperity gospel? If we're not reading in context of covenant relationship here, we will wrongly place a theology of prosperity on this text and the many others that talk about blessing and cursing in Deuteronomy, 
and it will spin our theology in the wrong place. You see, let me give you some examples of how that theology can get out of hand. We might ask, what is the point of the cross, of salvation? Rather than the truth of being made one in intimate covenant relationship with the Father, we can wrongly start to believe that the whole point of the cross is to get to heaven when we die. So we can get eternal vacation from our toil. But see, those are side effects. They're not the goal. Jesus died on the cross not to give you an eternal vacation, but to give you oneness with the Father. How about heaven? How can this theology start to creep and adjust our view of heaven? Well, rather than the truth of a redeemed, redeemed creation in which God and man dwell together in love, we start to wrongly focus on the fact that God Oh, good old King Jimmy language, he's making me a mansion in heaven. I'm looking forward to that mansion one day on those streets of gold. Our focus starts to adjust to the wrong things. The whole point of that story is that it's so pure and so beautiful because Christ is among us. It has nothing to do with wealth. We start to turn even eternal reconciliation and redemption with God into a glorified retirement plan. And so we see that we can quickly tweak the whole point of covenant relationship to be for our material gain, our prosperity, our blessedness, hashtag blessed, rather than seeing blessing as first and foremost the Lord's presence among us. Think with me of the benediction that we sing at the end of every Sunday gathering. The Lord bless thee and keep thee. How does he bless us? What is our wish for one another? That he would bless us? That he would make his face shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee. That his countenance would be lifted up on thee and that he would give you peace. Why? Because of relationship in the presence of your creator. The peace, the grace, these come from the fact that we are before his face, his countenance, and he is present with us. Blessing, dear church, blessing, dear brothers and sisters, is first and foremost a statement of God's presence among his people. Only then do his people respond with adoration for the fact that he is also materially provided. And so Moses is pleading with the people to keep the covenant that the Lord has laid out before them so that they might see true blessing, relationship with Yahweh. Only then, with his presence among them, will they see the benefits of the provider and the sustainer. Because at the core of who God is, he desires to bless his people. And that is our next point that you can write down. The Bible declares God's desire to bless his people with his presence. If blessing is first and foremost a statement of God's presence among his people, then it stands to reason. That because God desires to be with us, in fact, he sent his son to die for that purpose, then he desires to also bless us. So in that vein, prosperity gospel is dead on. The Lord does desire to bless every one of his people. He's not just an emotionally immature parent who is trying to make up for their lack of intimacy by giving their children stuff which is a rampant plague in the United States. No, he wants to have emotional intimacy and proximity, and from that place, provision will flow freely. And this has been his desire from the beginning. Let's dig deep into this narrative theme throughout Scripture by going back to Genesis 1. Would you turn there with me? Go back to Genesis 1, and I want to show you really quickly how we can see that theme come out even in the beginning pages. We're going to read it as a Jewish person about to step into the land of Canaan. I've gone through this with you before, but I think it's extremely important because I think in our attempt to fight back um, the wrong theory of evolution, we've adjusted Genesis 1, as I've told you before, and made it something other than it was intended to be. We've turned it into a science textbook when it wasn't intended to be that. And so right here at the beginning in Genesis 1.1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now, I've shared this with you before. In the Hebrew, that word earth there is the word ha-eretz. Everybody say ha-eretz. It's actually what's referred to as the land. Okay? Now, remember, back in these days, they hadn't done Apollo 11. Nobody knew that we were on a big orb that looked blue and green. They thought they literally existed on a plate. And so when it says the land, they're looking at their feet going, this thing. They're not thinking about the earth. This isn't a science textbook. Bara Elohim. God created. Hashemayim vaha'eretz. Okay? The heavens and the earth. The land. The Jews looking at this and reading this and hearing this from Moses were about to step into the land. And so this story to them was an encouragement that God who had originally provided and created the land for his people to exist in, he would do it again. And so Genesis 1.1 tells us that God is the creator and the provider providing for his people a land. Take a look down at verse 9 there. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. It's the same word, Eretz. And it was so, God called, the dry, or God called the dry land earth. There you have two different words. You have one that is dry, kind of uh, basically dirt. And then you have earth. That's Eretz right there. God called the dry dirt land. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. Why did he go into such detail? We got these over here with the fruit and the seed. We got these over here that are the plants of the ground. Well, just turn a little bit more over to verse 28 and take a look there. And God blessed the humans, Adam, which is the name for man, and Eve, the mother of all living. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the land, Ha'eretz, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is where he says, you guys are supposed to be the subregions, the kings. And God said, behold, I have given you Humans, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the, the, the land, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. You see why there's the distinction? You guys get the seed bearing fruit. The animals, they get the grass. This is how it's supposed to be. Why? Because you are my image bearers. You are the ones that are going to cultivate the earth. You're going to be the kings. You're not the beasts. You're to rule over the beasts. They just have the grass. Everybody got me so far? Okay. Some of you are like, why is he talking so much about vegetation today? Because the, the Bible does in Deuteronomy 11. So he's made this distinction, a distinction between who's supposed to be the subregents and who's supposed to be the beasts that are ruled over. And this distinction is brought to a heightened focus when we read what happens after the fall. But before we get there, let's look at Genesis 2, 7. He's going to reiterate this again here in Genesis 2, 7. In 2, 7, he says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, guys, remember, the main point of Eden wasn't vacation. The main point of Eden was it was a temple in which the glory of God dwelt with man and man and God could be one in covenant relationship. And out of the ground, he says, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden. Notice all this language, guys. It's very much like chapter 11. And there it divided and became four rivers. In other words, Eden was taken care of. It was watered. God watched over it and he cared for it. So what happens when this covenant is broken and mankind and God are ripped apart because of mankind's rebellion? Does God say, fine, I'm going to take my provision and I'm going to go home 
like an infant child with a basketball? No. He says, guys, you don't want to be among me? I'm your provider. It's going to be harder for you. Why would you do that? And so, as a result of the curse, notice what happens. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the fruit-bearing, seed-bearing plants. No, what does it say? The plants of the field. You've decided to become a beast because I put you in charge over the beasts. And instead, you listened to the beast, the serpent, and became a beast yourself. This moves on and shows throughout the rest of Scripture that mankind is called to rule over their beastly urges, their emotions, their things that cause them to act like animals. And what do we as a society do? We say, no, actually, let's look to the animals to see how we should behave, i.e. evolution. You see it in chapter 4, right there with Cain and Abel. Cain is about to kill his brother. He's got this urge that he wants to take over. And what does God say to him? He says, Cain, what are you doing? Right? This sin, it's, it's about to take over. It's about to devour you. It lies at your door, waiting to devour you. It's a beastly urge. But God is so gracious that he does not leave us there. Yes, our choices ejected us from the garden, but he doesn't leave us there. He strives through the rest of the narrative, even in spite of that horror of rebellion, to restore that covenant relationship as it was in the Garden of Eden. Loving oneness between God and his people and provision that flowed freely from being so close to the sustainer and provider. He wants to provide that. In our culture and context, I've often heard it expressed, though, that the sadness we have from this fall from grace and expulsion from Eden is the loss of our ease and material provision. Darn, Adam, that's why I got to go to work every day. Right? You guys have heard that before. The focus is not on the loss of oneness with our Creator. In that garden, the greatest travesty was not our fall from ease. It was our loss of relationship with the God that created us. That's the effect of sin. And this, dear brothers and sisters, is what the redemptive story of the Bible aims to deal with. And we see this happening over and over. From this point on, God is doing all within his power to bring his people back into relationship with him so that he might once again place them in the midst of his provision and sustaining. But in every case, mankind quickly repeats their fall into beastly rebellion. Think with me of the Garden of Eden metaphor displayed in the Ark of Noah. Man amongst the animals, protected by God's provision. He emerges from the ark. What is the first thing he does? He plants a garden, a vineyard. Quickly, though, Noah succumbs to his beastly urges, involves himself in drunkenness, and depravity happens in an interaction with his own son. Well, then the Israelites, they come along and, man, we got to build a tabernacle and then a temple. And God gives them directions on how to fill that tabernacle and temple with Edenic garden imagery, imagery that shows the Garden of Eden so that the temple and the tabernacle are seen as the place where God will dwell together with man and he will be in the center of their community and he will provide for them. And yet, over the course of time, they use the temple for debauchery and idolatry to the point that God's spirit leaves. And this theme, guys, this theme that plays over and over and over and over is what is happening in Deuteronomy 11. Go back there with me. In Deuteronomy 11, he says very clearly, guys, right there in verse 10, I'm taking you into the land that I'm going to provide for you. This isn't like the land of Egypt from which you have come where you sowed your seed and irrigated it. The word in the Hebrew there means you had to water it by foot, meaning you took buckets to the Nile, filled them up, took them back over to the plants and poured it out. I've seen this done in Burkina. It's how they water over there. It is exhausting for these people. And he compares it to the land he's taking them into, that it's a land where God cares for it. The eyes of the Lord are always on it. It gets rain from heaven. And then he goes down and he says, and if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season. 
And notice what he says. He says, he will give you your grain, your wine, and your oil. He will give you the fruit of the olive tree, of the grapevine, and grain, all seed-bearing plants. There's a restoration of Eden here. And what is he going to reserve the grass, verse 15, for? The grass of the fields will go to who? The livestock. Guys, there is an imagery, a reordering, a breaking of what sin did. This section has nothing to do with wealth. It has everything to do with the fact that God wants to restore his desire to be one with his people, and provision is a side effect of that. And so Moses warns them, stay in covenant faithfulness with your God, or he'll lovingly have to discipline you again so that you might turn back to him. Please stay in covenant faithfulness with him. And that's what verses 18 through 25 are all about. Notice the wording there in 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children. Does this remind you guys of any, anything? Go ahead, say it out loud. The great Shema, just a few chapters earlier. You see, he's finishing off the section of summary here in chapter 11 so he can start to step into the more direct and detailed commands uh, that are coming from verse 12 on. But first he has to say, guys, You've got to understand what's at stake. Don't give up covenant faithfulness with the Lord. Recognize he loves you and walk in his blessing, which is his presence among you. All of this, dear flock, is meant to elicit not hopes for wealth and material ease, but an understanding that God will be among them in a restored union, just as it was in the garden. Can you see how our context of American materialism so quickly leads us astray in our interpretation of what this section is talking about when it talks about blessing? We see this shallow side effect of material ease and assume that that is the goal of what God is doing here rather than the truth of his presence among his people. Is it any wonder that we are the originator of the prosperity gospel and that we export it throughout the world destroying true theology in the people that hear it. The gospel in which one sows their seed of financial faith so that they can reap a greater reward, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it. The power of positive thinking, the rhema word of God. These dear brothers and sisters are products not of the word of God, but they come from priests of the false God prosperity, fulfilling their religious duties. And so when we read this section in Deuteronomy 11, partially because we take Scripture out of biblical context and partly because we replace that context with our American context of prosperity worship, we read verses 8 through 17, and we read verse 28. We read these, and we hear that there's a contract that if we are moral enough, God will finally give us a life of ease. But dear brothers and sisters, this could not be further from the truth of its original intent. And to use it as theological truth is to step into the same horrible theology as Job's friends, unfruitful, ignorant, and just dead wrong. God's desire is not ultimately for your ease or mine. Let me say that again. God's desire is not ultimately for your ease or mine. A life in which we do not struggle with sickness, death, toil, and the turmoil of sin, that's not the goal of God. It is the potential byproduct of the goal, which is covenant unity and oneness with our creator God. God's desire is for relationship with you and I. That is why he sent his son Jesus to this earth. Because in the death of Jesus, Jesus paid for your sin and mine, which is what divided us from our creator and our sustainer and our provider. And in rising again, he proved that that distance was removed. And we could once again be enrolled in the assembly of heaven, as the book of Hebrews puts it. And we could be one with our Father and have the countenance of God finally shine upon us because Jesus' righteousness was counted as our own. That's the cross. That's the point of this book. It is not a self-help manual on how to have wealth and health and ease. God's desire is for relationship with you. 
His entire eternal and divine purposes are so that he can be one with you. Man, if that doesn't make you feel loved, I don't know what will. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you haven't accepted his sacrifice, if you are not a person who says, yes, I want to give my allegiance to this God, this God of this Bible, then I would love to talk with you after the service and help you understand how loved you are and that Jesus, in fact, died so that you could be one with the Father. Well, let's continue on and take a look there at verse 26. And right now we're just going to read verses 26 through 28. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Now, we're going to go into far more detail around these verses in chapter 12 next week, but what I want you to focus on this morning is verses 26 and 28. We'll cover the rest next week, so I'm not leaving anything out. We read this and the other portions of Deuteronomy that deal with blessing and cursing. And again, if we're not careful, we begin to construct that same prosperity theology. A prosperity theology that if I'm obedient, then God will be pleased with me and bless me with ease and prosperity. But this is not what Moses is saying here. And when this law is reiterated later in Deuteronomy 27, this idea is cemented. I want you to see this here. Look at Deuteronomy 27.9 up on the screen. They're going to walk through this same exact statement of the blessing and cursing, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. But notice what it says. Then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, keep silence and hear, O Israel. This day you have become the people of the Lord your God. This is prior to the blessing or the cursing. You shall therefore obey the voice of the Lord your God, keeping his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today. Chronology is important. God never, ever, ever, ever in the Old Testament says, I will make you my chosen people if you obey. He always saves by grace and says, I have saved you because I love you and I've chosen you. Now, as a response, please obey. It's better for you. This is the entire statement. It is not a contract that exists that obedience equals the blessing of ease. It is a relationship based on grace from which a loving response proceeds. What he is saying is today you have a choice, Israel. You can step wholeheartedly into the covenant with Yahweh that he has given you by his grace and feel the wonder of his presence and receive the positive side effects of that relationship or you can choose to go after other false gods and lose your special relationship with Yahweh because you've stepped out of it, and receive an expulsion from his presence because he's holy and he can't have continuous rebellious sin in his presence. And so I set before you today the possibility of blessing or cursing. Which are you going to choose? Guys, if I didn't know any better, I would think we were in the New Testament. (laughs) Hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, that he has saved us by his grace, and that he has set before us a choice of how to walk because of that. For God so graciously loved the world that he saw that it was in sin and rebellion, cursed by our own mindset that we could lead ourselves, no longer able to dwell in the holy presence of God. And God, in the midst of our sin, sent his son Jesus to die in our place upon the cross, paying the price for our sin and reconciling us in new covenant relationship with the Father. And this is why we will shortly turn to the tables of communion and we will take of the the bread that symbolizes his body and the cup that Jesus himself said, this is my blood that is the new covenant put forth on the cross for you and for me. By God's gracious love and choice, he has called us to himself and made for himself a people only possible by the sacrificial work of Jesus. And because of this gracious love, we now move forward choosing to stay close to him in obedience or choosing to slowly step out of obedience one bit at a time. And so he sets before us, those who follow him today, a blessing and a cursing. You see, dear church, blessing is a statement of God's presence among his people. And the Bible shows us that God's desire is to bless his people with his presence. And so in his son Jesus, he did just that. And this is my last point for this morning. In Christ, we are already blessed. 
in Christ, we are already blessed. You know, as a pastor, I'm always stunned at how many people will say things like, man, I just want to feel the Lord's presence. I just want his presence. And what I want to say is, go read your Bible. Go read your Bible. Stop saying that. Go read your Bible. I just want to feel it. Forget feelings. There are plenty of days I'm sure my wife feels like divorcing me. Praise God she doesn't follow them. (laughs) You want to know his presence is with you. And guess where you look for that assurance? His word. Because he has given you his Holy Spirit. You want to be among God's presence? Guess where you you also can go? Here. Why? Because you're surrounded by Christians who also have his spirit among you. His spirit is here. His presence is here. Likewise, I hear Christians constantly say, man, I, I just, I, I want to be blessed. Why won't the Lord bless me? Well, same thing's true, guys. You can be completely poor, dying of cancer, in the worst possible scenario you could imagine. And guess what? My word for you today is, you are hashtag blessed. I will know that we as Christians understand this when people take pictures in horrible scenarios and they're going, hashtag blessed, big frown, this sucks, but I'm blessed. Why? Because Jesus is still with you. He's given you his presence. He's forgiven you your sin. He's placed you in reconciled relationship with the Father. The Apostle Paul, speaking of blessing through Christ's work on the cross, he says this in Romans 4. Why don't you turn there with me? Romans 4 because we're going to look at Romans 5 as well, and then we'll be finishing up. In Romans 4, verse 7, he says this, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Give me an amen if you're blessed in that sense. Blessed are the ones whose sins are covered. Give me an amen if you're blessed in that sense. Verse 8. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin. Or woman, against whom the Lord will not count sin. Give me an amen if you're blessed in that sense. I feel the Spirit here today, folks. (laughs) You see, the reality is you're blessed. It doesn't matter your circumstance. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are more blessed now than you have ever been in the past and you ever will be in the future. Because Jesus is with you. Take a look at chapter 5 of Romans. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our prosperity. Thank you. Sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Do you think a prosperity gospel preacher ever preaches from this section? For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's you and me, folks. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. What's the point of the Bible, guys? It is not your material blessing. It is not getting to heaven when you die. It is not mansions or streets of gold. It is oneness with the God that loves you. Amen? You're blessed. Your church, a false theology of prosperity will tell you that suffering is for those who are not faithful. And so when you have struggles or sickness or poverty, that theology will heap shame upon you that you have not been obedient. Now there are sins that absolutely, they propel us into brokenness and they propel us into consequences. And we must recognize that. But even then, stand firm in faith because walking through that consequence, 
the faith of Jesus Christ will bring you out the other side blessed. Don't let the lie into your head that if you are struggling or stressed or anxious or depressed, that you're not faithful. In today's prosperity-driven culture, we must properly discern what is blessing. The blessing Paul speaks of is the blessing of God's presence in your life by the atoning work of the Son and the presence of the Holy Spirit he poured out into your heart. The blessing Paul speaks of is the blessing of God's presence through the church body of which you are a part that has within it the spirit of the living God that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. The blessing that Paul speaks of is one that remains regardless of your circumstances or any hellish situation that is facing you. To discern blessing in the midst of a prosperity-driven culture is to know that in Christ we are already blessed. And so we can rejoice in whatever comes our way because God is with us. Amen? For those of you who are visiting with us, I want you to walk out of here and go back to your churches knowing what blessing is. For those of you that are part of mission here today, I want you to know what blessing is so that we can rejoice in the blessing we have every time we gather. This morning, I want you to try and wrap your mind around this biblical view of blessing. And this week, I want you to put it in place. The first thing I want you to do is that I think it might be true that many of us in this room need to first repent and turn from our, our, our idolatry of a life of materialism and ease. We need to repent from that idea. We literally follow a guy who went and got pinned to a tree with nails, and he says, come, follow me. Is there anything in there that's ease? No, he said, come die with me so we can reconcile this world back to the Father. We must repent from our idolatry of a life of materialism and ease. Is it bad to want stuff? Is it bad to like having comfort? No, not at all. That's not sin. But don't make it your God. And don't make it the Bible's point. Well, secondly, not only do I think we need to repent from that, probably every one of us in this room to a certain extent, Secondly, we're going to begin our time of worship and communion by reading together from Psalm 23. Because this psalm speaks of good times and bad times, but emphasizes in the midst of it all, no matter the external circumstances, we're blessed because God is with us. That's what I want us to take from this week. And I want to challenge you this week. I want to challenge you with this. Every morning when you wake up this week, I want you to read Psalm 23. I want you to recite it out loud. I want you to do that as part of, your, part of your devotional time with the Lord. And I want you to recall the truths from today. The blessing is a statement of God's presence among his people. That the Bible declares God's desire to bless his people with his presence. And in Christ, we are already blessed. I want you to do that for one week. And I want to see if it affects your focus and if it affects your outlook. Because, dear church, regardless of what comes against you this week, you do not need to strive for blessing you're already sitting in the midst of it if you are a follower of Jesus Christ.